Well, friends, peace be with you. Um, Abraham Heschel talks about a story about a man who was captivated. He was a prince and he was captivated and he had to live in a foreign land. And this is a very strange, unsettling period for him, uh, time for him. And uh, as, as the story is described, it says that he was living amongst a crude and illiterate people. And so, you know, they didn't share his customs, they didn't share his ways, they didn't know the stories of this prince. They didn't, because they were illiterate, they didn't even know their own stories, let alone his. And so what happens in that type of situation sometimes is because you're living with people who aren't always like you and don't share your stories and maybe even some of the same values is that you start to kind of blend in a little bit and you forget something about who you are and how you have been been called to live. So one day he's living in this foreign land and he gets a note from his father and the note says this, don't forget your princely manner, I will come and get you soon. Don't forget your princely manner. I will come and get you soon. And to him, he just received this with great joy. He was excited by this. Oh, right, I am actually royalty. I am actually a prince. And he was so excited that he prepared this feast for the locals, and they had this wonderful celebration, and he was filled with this anticipation and and with this hope. And I say this to ask a question. Did you know that you are royalty? Uh, For the people who are in Christ, who are followers of Jesus, you are actually uh, royalty. There was a pastor who was uh, at this reception, and he got to talk to the British ambassador. He was excited about this. This is the British ambassador, for goodness sakes. and got to interact with the prime minister, the British prime minister, and even the queen. It was the queen then on some occasions. And this pastor was excited. said, oh, it must be so amazing, you know, being an ambassador, you know, a British ambassador. You get to speak with those people. And the British ambassador, who was a Christian, looked at him and said, oh, yeah, but you're a pastor. You You're an ambassador of the king of kings. And he kind of put that in perspective a little bit. Like, oh, 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 right, right. I I am actually an ambassador of the king of kings. And if you are a follower of Christ, that's actually true for all of us, not just pastors or missionaries, but every one of us. Paul says so in Corinthians. You are an ambassador of the king of kings. But here's the thing is that we we live in a land that feels sometimes different. Uh, Things are different. Maybe we feel as if... um, you know, the people around us are, are, don't share the same values. Uh, sometimes we feel like we don't fit in sometimes. And so just like that prince captivated and living in a foreign land, we can forget our princely manner or princess manner, whatever it happens to be. Now today's text, Jesus, um, as he stands before Pilate, it's a powerful text, and we're going to go through it in a second. Uh, he says that his kingdom is not of this world. So my kingdom is not of this world. And so the question we're going to ask is, what does it mean to belong to a kingdom which is from another world? Like what in the world does that mean? My kingdom is, is from another. So, so he is the king, and his followers are obviously royal subjects as we follow in the footsteps of our regal leader. But at the same time, our question is, how are we to live in the midst of this one? Because if we are living in this world, but... We follow a king who actually has a kingdom which is from another world. What are the implications for us as we try to navigate these days today? And so we're looking through the Gospel of John. So if you've got your Bible and you want to turn to John 18, I invite you to do so. We're going to have the words up there on the screen too. And again, a reminder, this is our journey through the Gospel of John. So we're going through line by line. Uh, John was an apostle. Uh, he is one of, the, one of the intimates. He's one of the close apostles. He gets to experience these things as he walks and talks with Jesus. And as you recall, is last week, beginning at chapter 18, verse 1, we're going through that difficult part of the story uh, of Jesus' betrayal. 
uh, at the hands of Judas and the soldiers and, and the, some of the temple authorities. And so last week we looked at, uh, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus pronounces his name as the great I am. You know, everyone is thunderstruck, right? The, the guards and Judas, they are blown back. Uh, Peter gets out his sword and in haste he cuts off Malchus's ear. Uh, Jesus admonishes him, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup of suffering that the Father has set out for me? And then uh, he goes into the high priest's courtyard, and of course, Peter has his first denial about Jesus. And so that's where we are. And so one of the things as we go into the text today, I will note this, because for those of you who follow along with how the Gospels kind of line up with one another, sometimes you notice that, okay, how does, John seems different. John feels different. Now, part of the reason for that is because John, as he, as he constructs his gospel, he seems to have this agenda of including information that is left out in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so as you go through the gospel of John, you find, oh, this story isn't in the others, this story isn't in the others. It's as if he's like, okay, what are the, what are the important things that people need to know that the others have left out? I will include them in mine. And so he does that, and that's the same for the trial. And so he focuses on, and what we're looking at today is the kind of pre-trial. There's a kind of informal pre-trial with Ennis. And then he can skips over the time with Herod, and he skips over the time with the Jewish high council called the Sanhedrin to really focus on the time before uh, Pilate. All right, and so with those things in mind, we have Jesus before Annas chapter 18, beginning at verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Quick note here, two high priests are mentioned in this story. This is the first one, and this is Annas. <clears throat> the other one will be Caiaphas. Now, there's only one high priest, so what in the world is going on? Well, Annas held the office for a long time, and he is really the unofficial high priest, and he had such authority, and he held the office for so long that people, a lot of people considered him to be the true high priest in the temple system. Um, <clears throat> many Jews held that the high priest was to have this role and function for their lifetime, um, but the, jo- the, uh, the Romans ousted him from his, from his seat of office, and so many people took issue with that. It still considered him the high priest. Um, but really his son Caiaphas is the official high priest and we'll meet him shortly. So the high priest questions Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Are those who have heard me what I said to them? And they know what I said. Sorry, ask those who have heard me what I said to them. and They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And so as we go through Jesus' trial, what he will experience increases in severity, the mistreatment that he finds. So this is one of the first things. He's already been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, but here he gets gets hit. And we also need to remember that most likely he is still bound. So we were told in the Garden of Gethsemane he's tied up, and so he's being mistreated. Like, he's not posing a threat, but they're they're hitting him, all right? And so this is the first of kind of increasing steps of severity in his mistreatment. Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Ennis then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So that's his son Caiaphas, who's the official high priest that year. Verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. All right, he's outside by the fire. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not, which are his exact same words from last time. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, Malchus, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. 
Now, a couple of things. So <clears throat> this fulfills something that Jesus had said back in chapter 13, verse 38. Jesus predicted this. Right? So all of this is unfolding according to a plan. It's not coming as a surprise to Jesus. And so Jesus actually specifically said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now, I think at this moment, like we're not told, John doesn't tell the detail about how Peter responds, but Luke tells us. And Peter goes out and he breaks down and he weeps. And I just think in that moment, here's Peter. You know, Peter is such a, you know, he comes across as this, you know, emotional, zealous, passionate guy. He sometimes puts his foot in his mouth. He, he wants to do the right thing, but he has, he has left so much to follow Jesus. Jesus has told him, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, right? And Peter here in this moment realizes in this moment he has denied Jesus his master, someone who he knows and has confesses that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. He has denied him three times in his hour of need and a grown man cries. And maybe we can think of a time when we have been filled with regret or we've done something that we should not have done and we think, I have betrayed something in my very core, something that goes against my fundamental value in life and it shakes you. And I think that's what Peter is experiencing here. Verse 28, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Pause, so what's going on? So, of course, now we're kind of skipping over to the, the trial before Pilate. So he's the, that's the governor. And what we need to know is that they're there in Jerusalem, right, to celebrate the Passover, so just remember that the Passover is that there's three annual pilgrimage festivals where uh, many people in the Jewish community would travel on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So it's a big deal. So it's like it, it swell, the population swells. People are there for the Passover, which is that annual celebration of when God liberated the Hebrews from slavery. Now, why is Pilate here? We don't really tend to hear about him. Well, Pilate's headquarters, now he's like the big cheese. Well, it's not the big cheese. He's like you know, Caesar in Rome, he's the big cheese, like the sub-big cheese is Pilate. So he reports to Caesar. But his office is in um, Caesarea, which is more in the north. But the idea is that whenever there's a pilgrimage festival, all of a sudden there's a lot more people in Jerusalem and people are talking about the liberation of God and freedom and all this sort of stuff. And so if there ever there's going to be an uprising, if ever there's going to be political problems, it's during one of those Passover festivals. And so Pilate, at those times, comes down and makes his headquarters in Jerusalem. And so that's why he's here. All right, verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves. Judge him by your own law. Right? Pilate's like, I'm not Jewish. Like, you've got your own little religious squabbles. Like, deal with it yourself. You kind of get that sense here, right? Uh, the Jews said to him, and here again, we're reminded that the phrase the Jews quite often refers not to all Jews, but specifically those uh, Jewish religious authorities who have made it their mission to oppose Jesus. I think it's important to say that to them. The Jews, those Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Hold on. So it's not just some little squabble that, they're talking about like putting someone to death. Now, why couldn't they just do this themselves? Sometimes we hear about them stoning someone if some of the laws of Moses are broken. Well, Rome had recently revoked 
their independent right to put one of their own people to death. And so they're actually going through the process of this by going to Rome. They want to kind of follow all the official steps. But also they're saying, this is a serious charge. We, we detest this man Jesus so much, we want his heart to stop beating. Okay? This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to them by what kind of death he was going to die. Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, so now you get the sense that they're just them, they're, they're, they're kind of separate from the crowd, are you the king of the Jews? Now that's the issue. The issue is, is he or is he not a king? And so the phrase we're more used to hearing, although he has been called a king earlier in John's gospel, the phrase we're used to hearing is Messiah. Messiah means anointed one, so God's chosen king and representative on the earth. But Pilate, what he's concerned about is, wait a second, are you setting yourself up as a rival to Caesar? Because then it's a political problem. So if Caesar has other people who are claiming to be kings and who are going to show allegiance to him and not to the Roman government, that's, that's the issue that he's fundamentally concerned about. Verse 34, Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation. The chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, here it is, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness or to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, that, that's pretty brash. You're talking to the sub-big cheese pilot. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So he's, he's, he's kind of confronting him. Hey, if you are of the truth, you will believe what I'm saying. That's a pretty provocative and powerful thing to say. Or another angle might be he's actually engaging in bold evangelism. Is, is he right now actually saying to Pilate, hey, do you want to be one of my followers too? It's hard to interpret what his intent was there, but I think you could look at any one of those possibilities. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Seems kind of strange. It almost sounds as if Pilate kind of goes into a mode of a university or college philosophy class. What is truth? He's kind of pulling on his beard or something like that. Um, But I do want to notice the contrast. There's so much irony and so many contrasts in this story. As I always say, details matter. Jesus is the truth. And so he says, what is truth? But the irony here is that capital T, truth embodied in human form is actually standing in front of Pilate in that moment. Back in chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, he says. And he is truth embodied. And Pilate says, what is truth? Truth himself is standing in front of Pilate in this trial. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Could be translated robber, could be translated as a revolutionary insurrectionist. But what we need to see here too with the Barabbas, again, there's a contrast. So John is there, he includes details. Who is the servants here? Oh, it's Malchus. Oh, where are they? Oh, it's the servant girl. He includes all this eyewitness detail, which is so amazing. And he includes the name. I think we're supposed to pick up on yet another contrast. The name Barabbas in Aramaic means son of the father. Barabbas, Barabbas. And so the irony we're supposed to see is they want the innocent man condemned, who is the real son of our heavenly father, and they want released the criminal who is called the son of the father but isn't. 
And so we're intentionally supposed to see that contrast here. So we end our close look at the text there. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we're going to zero in on the nature of this kingdom. If this kingdom is not of this world, what is the nature of this kingdom? What is the implication for us as God's people? And so let me highlight a few things. The first is that sometimes when we hear the kingdom, we can hear kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, and we think this is just about heaven or life after death. And it certainly includes that, but it is not only about that. And I think it's a mistake, right? And one of the clues that we have to this regard is in the prayer that Jesus taught us and that Uh, We prayed earlier in the service, right? What does he say? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so there is an otherworldly quality to this kingdom, and it is something that Jesus prays gets broken into this world in which we live. Okay, so it's otherworldly, but it's something that's breaking into this reality here on earth. Your will, done, your will, Lord, on earth be done as it is in heaven. Second thing I want to highlight, how do you enter into this kingdom? Well, fortunately, Jesus has actually already told this. So way back at the start of this series, uh, in chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus said this. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, and this is from that famous nighttime conversation with Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that phrase born again could also be translated as born from above. The word is anothen. So what does it mean to be born again? So this is one of those phrases that we use so much, it's like, I don't even know what this means anymore. Well, here's what it means. So if someone is born the first time, especially in the ancient world, their identity and their allegiance is very closely related to their family, specifically the father, because the father tends to represent the family publicly, especially in the first century. And so as this occurs, so, so when you're born into a situation, into a biological family, Right? People ask, okay, who's your father? Who, what does he do? And that's probably going to be your profession. That's your identity. Who's your mother? What's the reputation of your, of your mother's family? What's your socioeconomic class? What, what town are you from? And all these things go into contributing your identity. And especially in the first century, it's very rare for you to break out of that identity. And the second word after identity is allegiance. And so since you're in that family, you have an allegiance to the family. You become kind of like a, an employee of the family. And so you're all building each other up and you're supporting one another and you're probably going to take on the same profession and you're going to support your family and you're going to contribute to their honor in the eyes of others, right, in this highly kind of honor-shame culture of the first century. And so to be born again is to have a total reorientation of those two things. Your identity is in your, your new father, your heavenly father. And your allegiance is also to your father. And your allegiance to God is going to be so high that it will even trump Those allegiances to your biological family, which especially in the first century, were very, very strong. So you make that ultimate commitment to God above. Your identity is in him. Your allegiance is to him. That is what it means to be born again. And thereby, Christ invites you into his kingdom when you step out in faith and say, yes, I'm committed to that king. Okay? So the next thing we need to notice is that Jesus calls it my kingdom. He says the kingdom of God is my kingdom. And so it's wherever his will is done and people acknowledge who he is and the kind of thing he wants to do in the world. Now, there's a theologian named John Piper, and in his book called A Hunger for God, this is how he defines the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the present reigning power of Christ in the world, subduing hearts to the king and creating a people who believe him and serve him in faith and holiness. Now, I think that's very accurate. That certainly sums up, I think, a lot of what Jesus says by my kingdom. At the same time, it's very theological, right? I think it's true, but it's very theological. And so we could also look at it through the description of a child. Martin Thielen was preaching one day on a Sunday on a passage such as this about the kingdom of God. 
And uh, there's a child there who is doodling a picture, trying to capture visually what he was explaining about the kingdom of God. And later this child showed, showed it to Thielen. <clears throat> and he describes it in one of his books. So what does the kingdom of God look like? So this child had doodled this beautiful castle. And filling up the castle was this huge heart. Fills up the castle. At the bottom it said, God and Jesus rule! Exclamation point. And I thought, how great is that? This wonderful castle, the kingdom, the king's castle, full of a heart, which is the love of God. God and Jesus rule. So it's Jesus' kingdom. That's what happens. Now, what we also need to see is that Jesus' followers are members of this kingdom. And so if he's a king, it's an otherworldly kingdom, those who follow him are his royal subjects. And so we are princes and princesses in the kingdom of God. We are royalty, and this totally changes our status. And it goes specifically along, along with what it says about being born again. So the great reformed, um, reformer, Martin Luther, <clears throat> in the 1500s, he had a great way of talking about the grace and generosity of God, which brings us into this royal family, okay? He said, imagine that there's a, a poor, you know, young woman, and, and her life has had so many problems. She's a prostitute as well. <clears throat> and then there's a king. The king has, you know, authority, power. Uh, he has grace. He has money. <clears throat> but the king falls in love with this young poor girl who's a prostitute and the the young girl who's a prostitute falls in love with the king and they get married and it's a wonderful celebration. People are kind of scratching their heads a little bit at at this union but there you go, they're in love and they get married but all of a sudden everything changes for that young girl. All of a sudden, she is royalty. She actually is the queen. That's her new identity. Not only that, but all of a sudden she's not poor anymore. So all that he has is now credited to her account. And so everything has changed. And so this is actually happens to us as princes and princes in the kingdom of God. It's not because we're great and done everything. It's because the king has lavished his goodness and his grace and his love freely upon us. Okay, so this otherworldly kingdom, what else do we know about it? Well, as you go through the scriptures, you start to understand that this otherworldly kingdom is supposed to expand in this world when we live in the way that our king has told us to live as his royal subjects. And so the words that keep being repeated are things like love and holiness and truth and, and, and grace and justice and obedience and faithfulness. These are the kinds of things that we do as God's people to advance the kingdom in this world, this kingdom of Jesus. And it's his work, his spirit working through us. J.I. Packer, has I did a, a podcast uh, a couple days ago, but sent some book recommendations for, uh, for Lent <clears throat> for this period leading up to Easter. And one of those books was called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. In it, he says that the charter for the kingdom of God is the Sermon on the Mount. The charter. So who are we? What, what, kind, of, what kind of way are we supposed to live? Well, it's the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So I just want to read you some of the titles of some of the sections In the Sermon on the Mount, reminder, this is actually how royal people live. This is what royal people do. Okay? First of all, it's talking about the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. The humble. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The merciful. The pure in heart. The workers of peace. Those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Then he talks about being salt and light in the world. Then he teaches about the law of God. He teaches about anger. And not being ruled by it. He teaches about adultery and purity. He teaches about divorce and remarriage. He teaches about taking vows. He teaches, teaches about not taking revenge. He teaches about, teaches about loving your enemies. What? He teaches about giving to the needy. He teaches about prayer. He teaches about fasting. 
and relying on God. He teaches about money and possessions and not being ruled by those. He teaches about worry. He teaches about not judging others and looking at the mirror at yourself first. He teaches about doing good to others as you would have them do to you. He teaches about the narrow gate. He teaches about showing evidence of your faith, not just faking it. He teaches about being true disciples, and he teaches about the meaning of wisdom and the footsteps of the king. And so having said all of these things, I think the phrase that I want to leave with you today is I just encourage you to live like royalty. Okay, so live like royalty. This is who we are. We are royalty. Now, when you hear this phrase sometimes, people say, oh, I'm living like royalty. When do they usually say that? Well, they've probably won some all-exclusive vacation somewhere, and they're on a golf course, they're staying in a nice hotel, or a friend has gotten them box seats to some you know, highly exclusive sporting event. Oh, we're living like royalty. But here, what we are doing is we are remembering who we are in Christ. Remember that, Prince? Do not forget your princely manner. I'm coming to get you soon. We're supposed to have that same attitude. We are living like royalty, not because we have it great in this world, but because we belong to the king. And if we deny this fundamental allegiance to our king, if we deny this, and if we deny living in such a way that he calls us to live, isn't that some sort of version of treason? Are we kind of following in the footsteps of Peter? Now we make mistakes. We don't get it right. You don't. I don't. We make mistakes all the time. But this wonderful king who has married us, the poor (laughs) girl, the prostitute, he loves us and forgives us and all that he has belongs to us. And so how do you live like royalty? I just want to leave you with three kind of practical suggestions about how to do this. And the first is this. Just honestly ask yourself whether you are committed to the king. And I think we need to always come back to this question because sometimes we can grow up and we we go to church. We like the songs. We like the snacks, the polite conversation. And, And what a travesty would it be one day after our time on earth is done and we go and we're standing outside the gates of heaven and we see Jesus and he says, I don't know you. Second, I encourage you to review the kingdom charter, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And so I know that a lot of you are reading your Bibles. Hopefully you're doing so every day. You're praying. You're engaging in spiritual disciplines. And maybe you've got some reading plan. Maybe just take a shift this week. I encourage you to read the kingdom charter. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. The famous, most famous religious teaching, most influential all over the world. Okay, It's a reminder about how we are to live as these royal subjects, how we live like royalty. We're defined not by anger, but by patience. We're defined not by doubt, but by faithfulness. We're not defined by apathy, but by love. And reviewing the kingdom charter reminds us, wait a second, we are actually living in a way that is counterintuitive, countercultural. Or at least we should be from a lot of what is going on in the world around us. In the movie Poseidon, there is this dramatic scene where all these fancy people are in this big ship and the ship in the storm turns over. And so what happens is the people who are clamoring to get to the top of the stairs, they're trying to get to the top. They're actually doing the wrong thing because the shipwright is is turned over. And so they're actually going deeper into the water. But the people who think about it for a second and act in a way that seems counterintuitive, who actually get, get to the bottom of the boat and start knocking on the bottom because it's turned over. They're the ones who are actually going to be heard by the rescuers. And they come to the bottom of the boat, which is really up, and they get saved. Brothers and sisters, the ship of this temporary and messed up world in which we find ourselves is turned upside down. Down is up. 
Up is down, or so it often seems. And so those who realize it are the ones who experience rescue. To know what is truly happening, review the Sermon on the Mount. That is our kingdom charter. Third and finally, I just think it's a good news, good news message. I'll rest in the fact that nothing can shake or unsettle the kingdom from your soul. Nothing. And there are things that happen to us in life that shake and unsettle us. Our kingdom is not one of those things. You talk to people who lived through or experienced something of World War II, that was a crazy time. There's a lot of nations involved, global war, conflict, you know, family members, friends, people dying all over the place. That shakes and unsettles you. And then something like September 11th happened. I remember when September 11th happened. It, 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 it shook people. It unsettled people. Not only were we sad because of the loss of life, but how in the world could terrorists hijack two planes and, and fly them into these two iconic buildings in the, in the middle of the biggest city in America, which is the most powerful country in the world? And that very fact shook so many of us. And many of us don't even live there. And then something else happens, a pandemic or the war in Ukraine or rising suicide rates or, 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 or a worry or depression or whatever it happens. These things shake us. But this otherworldly kingdom, which Ephesians 5 calls the kingdom of Christ, cannot be shaken. So nothing can wrest that from your soul. Nothing can take it away from you. If you have all this disaster and terror and, and problems in your life, nothing will shake that fundamental reality of the kingdom of Christ. And so as a final thought, we should note that children in royal families, I read this a couple years ago and I was intrigued by it, the children in royal families go through special training. They have to uh, have these people come in uh, to help them deal with their life, which is going to be quite different. And so the, their interactions with peers or schoolmates or other people of the public and the media is going to be different. And so they need to have this special kind of training uh, for this high calling that they have in life. And of course, the connection I'm making is that we too, uh, need a special kind of training to live in this otherworldly kingdom. One, honestly ask yourself whether you are committed to the king. Two, review the kingdom chart of the Sermon on the Mount because we are a countercultural people. And three, rest in the fact that nothing can shake or unsettle the kingdom from your soul. Live like royalty. Praise be to God. Amen.